0: Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to Nalini Milani Game Pieces, uh, curated by Rana Devonport, the director of AGSA, and ably assisted by Lee Robb and Yue Shen, the assistant curator, Lee Robb being, being the contemporary curator. And today I'm going to talk about this series of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. What are known as Kaligat paintings, created circa 1880, 1875, we're not quite sure exactly, and find themselves in the midst of a very contemporary, very interesting environment. And, you know, Nalini Malani's history, her biography, which Rana really talked about last week, is quite, I think, informative on this exhibition. And also her interest in these Kali paintings, which she chose herself in the the Gallery's collection. This is, I think, seven of the nine. And then we have a a major one-of-a-kind book or compendium called Hindu Gallery of the Gods, which displays them in their most bright and evocative form because they've been housed in a book for so long. And that book was actually compiled by local missionaries for those that were going to West Bengal at the time. For missionary activities, to beware of the, the gods that they might encounter and not be seduced by them, because they are so remarkably seductive. On the wall back here. Now, Nalini Malani, just just to give you a brief overview of Nalini's life, uh, Nalini was born in what's pr- presently known as Karachi in Pakistan, in 1946, a year before partition, when that great part of the subcontinent was divided into Pakistan and India, you know. Islam or Muslim and Hindu largely, although that's not totally true. I have a friend who is a a Pakistani Hindu who grew up in Pakistan and, um, you know, was a devotee of of different Hindu gods. Uh, She went then, she was displaced, moved to Calcutta or Kolkata as it's called today, uh, which was the seat of the British East India Company and then the British Raj, during which time these were created. And I think she spent a couple years there and then on to Mumbai or Bombay as it was formerly known. So her interest, obviously she's, she grew up in a very complex period in Indian history, one that was very divided, very complicated. It was a, a nation trying to turn itself into a state, a modern state, grappling with all the complexities that that of, of that in a modern world. And as you see in the next room in particular, her... Paintings often reference very clearly, and in the titles as well, the great epics of Indian culture, such as the Ramayana, the story of Rama, and the Mahabharata, one of the longest poems, if not the longest poem, epic poem in the world. These are ancient tales that describe not only great events, great heroes, great villains, uh, great heroines, sometimes monkey kings, Uh, they also are very, very, very potent ways of understanding devotion in Hinduism. And that's one of the central themes of of these stories, um, as well as caste and uh, social structure. And that's another important aspect. And so we've included these to kind of reference her and her engagement with Hindu iconography and Hindu stories uh, in India as a way of kind of connecting the present with the past. Because, of course, anybody who's been to India cannot deny the power of Hinduism. Obviously, Islam as well, Jainism, Sikhism, but Hinduism in particular is such a potent, unbelievable force. If you've ever gone to a temple, witnessed a god or goddess, uh, it is a really life-altering moment. And so these paintings really represent, in some way, a small this devotion to these gods. Now what's interesting when I walk in here, because most of the time I spend my time thinking about history, the history of things, the history of art, and walking through a contemporary artwork installation like this, I get a sense of, a keen sense of dystopia, of something that is unhinged, a history that is kind of coming apart, a dystopian almost vision. And I think to a certain extent, that's the way that Nalini Malani viewed the world, particularly at that time in Indian history. And what's interesting about this, particularly when I walk through game pieces, this idea of the cyclical, this idea of images and videos repeating time thing and over and over again, actually makes me think of not the way we think of time in a Western sense, but it makes me think of time in a Hindu, cosmological sense. And Hindu time is very different to uh, Gregorian time, or the way we think of time as kind of a progression from point A to point B that goes on forever in one direction. Hindu time is cyclical and goes around and around and around, and it's composed of essentially what are known as four yugas or periods, the last of which is the Kali Yuga. And uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, we happen to find ourselves in the Kali Yuga, which lasts for about 400,000 years. And it's when all the apparatus, all the laws, all the rules, all the systems start to corrode and decay until eventually the great god Lord Shiva dances his great Tandava dance, uh, ushering that age out and beginning the whole cycle again and again and again. And so it's very interesting to me that we find ourselves sitting in the Kali Yuga, And we find ourselves sitting in this exhibition, which they seem to kind of match up and marry together. So, interesting thoughts of a curator walking through a contemporary installation and thinking about historical art. And this story reminds me, this idea of Kali, kind of beginning, sorry, Shiva, beginning the world again and again and again. makes me think of actually the beginning of the Kaligat Temple, which is where these were created, kind of outside the temple area in West Bengal, near the one at one time near the Hooghly River, now a bit farther away, and how this all began, the Kaligat Temple began. And according to the story, Shiva and these gods, Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma, often had many different aspects. Sometimes they're an ascetic, sometimes they're the Lord, sometimes they're a destroyer, sometimes they're a creator. It's a very complicated way of understanding the universe. At one point, Shiva was lounging about in his ascetic state, a kind of uh, yogi, in the Himalayas on Mount Kailash, the great Axis Mundi of Hinduism, where all the gods hang out when they're not doing things down on the earth in our mundane world. And he couldn't find his consort, Sati, or Pavarti, or Uma, as as she becomes on many different aspects. And so he wandered around Kailash looking for his consort, essentially his wife of sorts. And he couldn't find her. And eventually he found her and she had passed body over his neck and wandered about Kailash kind of like the Mount Olympus of the of the Hindu deities wandering crestfallen didn't know what to do with himself i'm sure all of us have been there at one time maybe you've lost a girlfriend or a boyfriend and you wander aimlessly throughout the streets kind of wondering where your life will end up well he being a god of the hindu pantheon he had help his friend i guess vishnu his compatriot god came down and essentially destroyed Sati into a million pieces. One of those pieces, her right toe apparently, ended up in Kaligat in West Bengal where the Kaligat Temple is formed. And this is really important. The Kaligat Temple is believed to be uh, the seat of Kali, not uh, the Kali Yuga, but a different Kali, often described as the dark goddess, the dark mother. She's very... Uh, the work or the sculpture enshrined in the temple is very dark, has three eyes, very foreboding, very seductive. But it's believed that this toe of sati actually imbued this area and the temple with a sense of shaktiism. And shakti is the female principle that kind of runs the female energy of the world, which gets everything moving. And you have to remember in Hinduism, it's the female and the male combined this creative energy that the world has separated they're powerful but together when combined they create this wonderful blossoming forth of energy and so it's from here around the 17th century that the kaligat temple was founded and it's really in the 1800s that it you know bengal and calcutta become the center of uh you know the british raj and the east india company it becomes a commercial a cultural a very important hub for creativity and one of the interesting things that emerges out of this creativity are what are known as Caligat paintings. And so if you look at them closely, they actually reveal an amazing amount. They're, not, they're on, made on milled paper, which originally was, was very white, kind of almost like a, a pasty white, and it's aged over time. If you look at them closely, you'll see that there's these beautiful, quickly drawn outlines, and then these splashes of color to give these kind of contours and contrasts on the face beautiful blobs of colors that kind of run over the outlines for the flowers and other things, this being Sarasvati, the goddess of music and all things that flow, like knowledge and rivers and so forth. And they were quickly painted, and at times you see there's some mica and silver uh, as well on them. They often were made in in an assembly line fashion, so somebody would do the lines, somebody would do the, the, the kind of blobs of ink or the blobs of pigment, and then somebody would do the mica, and then they would be done. And they were meant for pilgrims, as kind of a, t- a talisman or token of pilgrims who came to visit the Kaligat Temple, which was very popular, it still remains exceptionally popular, and to, for them to take back home. And they were created by what are known as patwa, or painters, who during the 1800s had flooded from the regional areas, many of them scroll painters, itinerant scroll painters who would wander around telling stories and using scrolls, as well as people who made clay models of these very same deities. And they'd be made in very quick succession for all these pilgrims that were coming through. Now, this trend only lasted about hundred years because in the early 20th century, obviously lithography and different types of ways of printing made these, in some, you know, kind of made these this talent in these these artists obsolete to a certain extent, sadly. Now, saying that there still is in existence Kaligat painters which cre- create p- paintings in a very contemporary form and. While these paintings depict largely Hindu gods such as Brahma on his uh, mount, the Hamsa, as well as Sarasvati, Vishnu, who else, Rahwana and Rama, they also were a sort of, um, not tabloid is the wrong word, but often they would present or depict contemporary events such as, you know, murders, sadly, but other things very beautifully kind of meted out, kind of popular Popular moments, they're almost kind of, in some extent, a tabloid. Not these in particular, but some of them are, and it's very interesting what they present. They present a very middle-class kind of existence, and unfortunately, our collection does not house some of these, these but uh, they're very intriguing uh, in the way that they meshed with what was happening in the society of Calcutta at the same time. Now, if we look closely, I'll probably talk about two in particular, because it's important to realize that these were, not simply, these were not simply paintings about contemporary time. These were paintings based on ancient Hindu epics. And the two that I'm going to point, talk about is the Rama and Ravana uh, from the Ramayana, and Lakshavid Arjun and Draupadi from the Mahabharata. Now, if any of you have ever had a chance to read the Ramayana, Excellent and Mahabharata, wonderful, fantastic epics, and it's and it's worth a read. The Mahabharata is exceptionally long, but even a portion of it is worth reading. So I'd recommend after today, uh, go pick up the Ramayana and Mahabharata. This is your homework and read a portion of it. Learn about their wonderful tales. The Ramayana, some of you may know, is about uh, Rama, Lord Rama, and his epic quest to re- to bring back his abducted wife, Sita, from the ogre king, Rahwana, or Rahvana. And we see Rama here on the right-hand side. It, he has, he's painted in this blue, kind of wonderfully contrasting dark shades on his legs, almost as an ascetic or a kind of yogi. And Rahwana, this, this amazingly overwhelming force with m- multiple heads and multiple arms, kind of pointing an arrow at his face, And as the epic goes, Rama and his wife Sita were wandering through the forest one day with his uh, brother Lakshmana, and of course his friend Hanuman, the monkey king, who you can actually see blue, uh, this blue Hanuman over there. And unfortunately, Rahwana came and abducted Sita, and the the rest of the epic essentially is told about Rama trying to uh, bring Sita from Rahuana back to himself, from Lanka back to, back to his family. And if we look at it, it's, you know, it's interesting. Rahwana is very scary, he's overwhelming, and yet he's wearing these wonderful kind of heeled shoes, almost like dainty heeled shoes. So fascinating and interesting look at the, Ram, the Ramayana tale, which pervaded Asia, not simply India, but you see it in Bali, you see it in Thailand. And so the, Rahma, the Ramayana became this epic tale that, that pervaded across Asia. The other is the Mahabharata, Mahabharata, the great epic of the great battle between the Pandavas and the Kauravas, and the the epic battle of Kurukshetra, which kind of ends this entire uh, episode. And this one is an intriguing moment in the tale when Arjuna, the great archer, is in hiding, but he hears of an archery contest taking place in a local kingdom. He dresses up, he's a warrior class, but he dresses up as a Brahmin priest, wanders into the kingdom, and the, the whole, the kingdom is undertaking essentially an archery contest to see who will marry Draupadi. The Draupadi's on the right-hand side. And every king that comes to the kingdom, every king that comes to the court, brings his best archer, and the whole, the whole goal is that looking while looking into a bucket of water, You have to shoot an arrow through the eye of a fish. And that's what's depicted on the actual image. Now, nobody can do this. As you can imagine, it's difficult to shoot an arrow anyways, and shooting it through the eye of a fish while looking in a bucket of water, that's complicated. But Arjuna is kind of otherworldly, and he can manage it. Now, this causes a great kerfuffle, because when they figure out that, yes, he is this amazing, talented archer, And yet he is from a lower class. He's not a Brahmin priest, which is kind of the upper level of the caste system. This causes a great kerfuffle, and of course Arjuna has to run away back into the forest, uh, and the tale continues. Now the Mahabharata is one of those great epic moments in literature. And the final chapter, not the final chapter, but the kind of epic moment Of the action occurs when the two bands of brothers, the Pandavas and the Kaunas, actually have to meet on the battlefield. And Arjuna, our hero, the archer who managed to get Draupadi, is in a a chariot riding towards these opposing forces. And he sees them. He sees actually his cousins, some of his uh, relations. On the other side, and he realizes in that moment that he can no longer go on. He cannot fight this battle between, uh, essentially, his family, another portion of his family, another side of his family, and it's in that moment that Vishnu appears in front of him, this giant, towering, monumental Vishnu, and he says to to Arjuna, "You have your fate. You have your dharma. You have your path, and you must follow it." Regardless of what happens, that is your job. And it's quite an epic moment in the Mahabharata, and it's really an epic moment in world literature, because at that moment, Vishnu says, I have become the killer of worlds. And what's interesting is that when they were testing the atomic bombs in Alamogordo, New Mexico, I can't remember the name of the scientist who said it, but he didn't quote the Bible, didn't quote the Torah, when he first saw the atom bomb go off the light, he quoted the Mahabharata. That is quite a statement about the pervasive nature of these epics. And I think that is a very interesting place to end for us as we sit in the middle of this this very challenging installation amidst these works of history and look to connect and bridge the gap between historic temporary. And so I think with that, if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. But otherwise, have a great day and enjoy the rest of the exhibition.